Want to stand with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Get her iconic Descent Collar in the form of a pin, necklace, or earrings. Descent Pins donates 50% of profits to causes you love, like the Bronx Freedom Fund and Planned Parenthood. Take 20% off today with code HARPERS at DescentPins.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. There's nothing quite like sharing a good meal with family and friends. Across every culture and era, food has been a way by which we connect. And it's been a common subject throughout Harper's Magazine's 169-year history, the best of which was collected in the anthology Know That What You Eat, You Are. However, Food can also mark the divisions within a particular culture or era. The sharecropper's burden of farming a particular crop, the black maid who must prepare a meal for the family she serves and then for her own, the limited, unhealthy choices caused by gentrification or food deserts. On November 7th at Book Culture, Rhonda Y. Williams, a historian of low-income Black women's and marginalized people's experiences, moderated a conversation with Lana D. Povitz, the author of Stirrings, about the history of food activism in the United States, and Monica M. White, author of Freedom Farmers, which tells the story of Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farms Cooperative. The trio discussed their work and the often unheard stories of people who worked the land, either by choice or by chance. Here's their conversation. So we have Monica M. White. She is the author of Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance, and the Black Freedom Movement. Monica is an associate professor of environmental justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She holds a joint appointment in the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology and the Nelson Institute of Environmental Studies. She is the first black woman to earn tenure in both the College of Agricultural Life Sciences which was established in 1889. So I'm assuming that she's the first black woman since 1889, which is appalling, um, but also very um, (laughs) fabulous. And the Nelson Institute, which was established in 1970 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research investigates black, Latinx, and indigenous grassroots organizations that are engaged in the development of sustainable community food systems as a strategy to respond to issues of hunger and food inaccessibility. So that's Monica White. <laughs> Lana D. Povitz, right here. I think a lot of people out here know Lana has written the book Stirrings, How Activist New Yorkers Ignited a Movement for Food Justice. Lana is a visiting professor at Middlebury College where she teaches courses on American history, radical social movements, food activism, and oral history. Born and raised in Montreal, in her words, she is a born again New Yorker. (laughs) And this is her first book, so. We're going to start with openings and groundings, and I want to do that by way of starting with the titles of these books. Um, So if we could start with the book titles, Freedom Farmers and Stirrings, could you all discuss for us the title of your book, why you chose it, 
and how it kind of helps us to understand what your project is about. Shall I start? All right. Well, the subtitle got changed around a few times, but Stirrings was important to me because it kind of speaks to the emotional mm -hmm. aspect of food organizing. Uh, and one of the things that I found across my, my case studies was how important it was that people felt strongly about what they were doing because that carried people through a lot of disappointment, a lot of confusion, a lot of defeat. And it's not, you know, stirrings is a little bit vague. It's not clear how people are stirred because they're stirred in all kinds of ways, angry, joyful, hopeful, disappointed. So I think it captures that. Mm -hmm. So for me, the title Freedom Farmers is um, a nod to the work of Fannie Lou Hamer, who started Freedom Farm Agricultural Cooperative. When I began the project, I was talking to uh, Sundiata Chajua, who's at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and he said, Mo, I got the title for you. <laughs> and so I was really grateful that I could have something that doesn't just take a historical look, but explains why African-Americans particularly are returning to agricultural roots in the work that we're doing today. Um, if you Google agricultural resistance, if my book doesn't come up, it will talk about the uh, ways that plants are resisting the pesticides and herbicides. And so that takes an ag focus, but I think in response to the ways that production has been sort of commodified and um, capitalized, Thinking about agricultural resistance and its contributions to a long history of black folks who've used food as an instrument of resistance and resilience, I felt like it really sort of captured that kind of connection. And so um, in addition to talking to about food production, just talking about food as a strategy. What mm. does food teach us? How do we use food? But also how food brings us together and how food can be a strategy of um, getting, you know, responding to current political, social, economic conditions. So Lonnie, your book also talks about how food brings people together. I want you to riff on that theme a little bit there, how you see your book really doing that, but taking a kind of maybe different perspective on it than agricultural resistance as such. As people know from the title, it's mm -hmm. grounded in New York City. So I sort of study four different groups and, their, and four different neighborhoods or parts of the city. So I sort of begin by looking at uh, a group of mothers, mostly parents, living in the South Bronx in the late 60s and 70s who were organizing together around a lot of things, but food became an issue that really brought people together and empowered them to feel like they could not only talk to each other, but to talk to city officials and to talk to the media and to speak with greater confidence and volume. Uh, food was really conducive for that. I also look at food in the context of countercultural, sort of new lefty, cooperative organizing. I look at food bringing people together around AIDS, which I mean, I'm focused on the 80s and 90s and period where people with AIDS were just completely socially abandoned by mm -hmm. all political and many family structures. And so food ended up being kind of a linchpin to bring people together. And then sort of also food as a way of making the city government pay attention or trying to make the city government pay attention to poor people who were under Reagan and then subsequent administrations just really suffering. And again, you know, hunger became an issue that people would think about, even if they themselves didn't have direct experiences with hunger, and kind of call louder attention than they otherwise might have been able to do. Mm -hmm. That was a lot. Breathe. 
It was a lot. That was a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. There are, there's a, lot a, lot. Of, there are yeah. a lot of pieces. Yeah. 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 It's a nice, hefty <laughs> book, both of you, right? So feel free to elaborate however you like. T tell us why these projects, why you decided to do the particular projects that you did and, you know, how you came to this work. I always wanted to study food because it was something that so many people cared about. Mm -hmm. But when I started to look at this kind of literature out there, I was an early stage grad student, and there was a lot of top-down stuff. There was a lot about agribusiness. There was a lot about the government, you know, the federal government and the revolving doors with fake business. Uh, and there just weren't a lot of people in the histories or in the works of anthropology or geography or sociology that I was finding. And so I became very curious about what did actual people do to improve their circumstances? And I was living in New York City and was very excited about it and kind of wanted to use the research as a way to understand the city more deeply and the kinds of coalitions that happened you know, in recent New York City history. So I had um, decided to move back to Detroit to care for my parents and wanted to really, I needed a research topic. And, <clears throat> excuse me, because I, you know, I was going home, I gotta find, what are you gonna study? And I wanted to, the, the, the image of what we were talking about in terms of urban agriculture in the, about 2006, 2007, especially in Detroit, absent black faces. Right? And so the story of who's going to save Detroit, how will, the save, how will Detroit be saved, and then also who's involved in urban ag, it was missing what we call generational black Detroiters, folks who've been there um, for generations. And so was lucky enough to find Baba Malik Yakini, who was the, the original co-founder, well, the founder and co-organizer of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. We had done some work on the Detroit Rebellion Conference. And I just asked the question, like, why now? Why black people? And post-PhD, learned a whole world of language, food sovereignty, food security. And you know, just so was really excited to hear black folks in Detroit talking about the importance of increasing access to nutrient-rich foods. So just sitting in meetings and listening to the conversations and listening to the strategies and using food as an instrument of resistance and resilience, I thought there had to be other moments in history when we've turned to agriculture as a strategy and food more broadly. And, and so of course, if you got a great question, go get the answer and bring it on back. And so that allowed me the opportunity to dig into the archives and to really sort of map this conversation of what do we see, what do we know? Now this started originally by looking at the scholarship and hearing the scholarship on black farmers as really from a deficit model, right? Mm -hmm. It was really exploitation and oppression, slavery, tenant farming, and sharecropping. Well, I'm thinking, well, that's not enough, right? There's got to be more to this. And as now uh, ancestor Toni Morrison said, if there's a book that you want to read that hasn't been written, guess what? Mm -hmm. And so I was excited because I met people like Reverend Paris who said, you can free yourself when you can feed yourself. Mm -hmm. And was shocked that this line of thinking of collecting land, food and labor, land, food and freedom, I'm sorry, but that, that connection was just really absent in the scholarship and really had a great chance to connect not only what I was hearing in Detroit, but could see in Georgia, Mississippi and Alabama, and then really think about the ways that we can talk about building sustainable communities around food and what food allows us to do. 
And so, um, yeah, that was the that was the trajectory. Started in Detroit, went down south, and then back to Detroit. Lana, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, as well, the activist roots or the community-based organizing roots that kind of led you into your project. I know that was something that yeah, you had I, <laughs> I hesitate to even call them that because the kind of political work I first became involved in when I moved to New York was very, I mean, it was very passionate, but it was not particularly effective. It was not particularly strategic. I was living in Bed-Stuy, which is for those who don't know, a historically black neighborhood that was rapidly gentrifying by exactly people like me. And the people I was organizing with were kind of, it was a mixed race group, but not, as you put it, generational Bed-Stuy folks at all. Um, and we were trying to do work around food. We had been involved with the Food Not Bombs uh, chapter, which sort of distributes free food publicly as kind of an anarchist statement. But there were problems with that group. And we were trying all sorts of things, but it really wasn't making a lot of difference. And we were getting to know our neighbors through it, and that was good. But it just didn't feel like we were doing that much. And I became increasingly curious about what it would take to actually achieve st structural change. And that kind of led me, surprisingly, to studying nonprofit organizations, which was, if you had told me in 2010 that I was going to be sitting here with a book about nonprofits, I would have probably uh, treated that statement with some degree of scorn, <laughs> you might say. Yeah, you said that was one of the most surprising things for it you, It was right? a but big surprise. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the people who I wrote about, I mean, United Bronx parents fed, the first year they sort of coordinated free summer meals for New York City. They fed 150,000 wow. New York City school children. And then the next every year they day. fed every day. Thank uh, you. Kathy Goldman in the audience is <laughs> <laughs> largely responsible for that. Uh, and then the next year, they were, were doing 250000 So, you know, yes, there were some compromises involved in working with the federal government as people were doing to get that money to feed that many people. But they were able to really make a big difference. And people were really needing that food, and people still are. So, you know, the idea of purity politics really had to go. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that it did. Talk about purity politics. Well, With this idea that, I mean, as a young, white, middle class, upper middle class, 20-something who didn't really have a lot of firsthand experience with the things I was dealing with, mm. had a lot of judgment still about um, working with the city government or incorporating, because then you had to sort of remain within the bylaws. I had a lot of concerns about ruling out extra legal methods. I had a lot of concern about authoritarian politics. And I was very dramatic about my politics. And I think that, <laughs> as I guess, you know, sometimes people are. But one of the great joys and honors of doing my research was I got to speak to all of these activists who had thought a lot of the same things I had thought at one point. It wasn't like I was particularly experiencing anything new, but who had decided that for the sake of getting things done and touching the lives of a lot of people, that they would be willing to make some compromises and sometimes apply for grants and sometimes hire some folks and sometimes get a board together that could actually bring in some attention and some money and some talents. And I actually was quite persuaded that it's a very effective way to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So Monica. I want you to jump in here, and I want you to jump in on, actually, it's a question I'm going to pose to Lana, 
but I want you to jump in sure. on it because I think your book speaks to it, Freedom Farmer speaks to it in, in maybe similar, maybe different ways. Lana, one of the things that I remember you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things I remember you writing in Stirrings was that to be an activist, to call something activist, requires that a profit not be made off of the activity. I think that generally, I, I don't, it depends what you mean by profit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely consider people who are staff people at organizations mm -hmm. to be activists. Right. I think working, being paid for your labor mm -hmm. in this economy. I it was really provocative. Kind of essential. I actually like, don't hmm. think I meant it as a provocative statement. Hmm. I think that like, I think it's essential that le at most they were nonprofits. Mm -hmm. I think that making extreme profits off of people's hunger, poverty, I think probably that's not activist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I, I don't profit think it's profit or two though. different things. You're, you're not going to get a debate from justice, power, and politics on that extreme profiteering. You say, I follow this expansive definition with the added criteria that to be considered activist, mm -hmm. efforts must also be collective and not for profit. Right. So I was wondering, Monica, when you're, when you're thinking about your freedom farmers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, turn of the 20th century before, before that, but turn of the 20th century forward, right? One of the things that they're trying to do is, it seems to me in some ways, make a profit through their activism, sure. their resistance sure. to sustain community. So sure. I was just wondering, you know, if we could have a little dialogue yeah, about that. Yeah, you know, that. I, I don't, I've never thought about their work in terms of profit. I've, I've thought about their work in terms of maintaining the land, providing housing, education, employment, uh, retraining former sharecroppers and tenant farmers, and especially in thinking about what it meant to exercise your right to vote also meant being fired and evicted, sometimes beaten and sometimes killed, right? And so these agricultural cooperatives or these collectives allow people to pull their resources together and to provide housing, to share land, to share labor, to buy a better tractor than 10 small tractors, right? You know, and so I think, for me, I don't think about profit mm -hmm. because I do think about it in a cooperative model. Mm -hmm. And so as a cooperative model, it is for the collective good. Mm -hmm. and, and so that, to me, the question of profit, especially thinking about black farmers who, even though the Pickford case was settled and resolved, still have been dispossessed of land, as Pete Daniels will tell us, right? And so I, I just, I don't see profit as, I don't see profit in, in the work that the, of the folks that I, I don't think about it as profit. In, in other words, I just don't think of it. So could you all talk about then how you redefine what it means to make money? Right? Yeah. To generate sure, income sure. and yeah, wealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right? so, so to me, it's a community wellness. Without using, sure. without yes, yes, using, yes, and actually, yes. in some ways, debunking or yes. dismissing I'm this idea of profit. Yes. Right? So, to me, the idea is community wellness and community wealth. So, as an example, from Detroit and looking at the work that we're doing, and then going to Cuba and seeing the work and seeing a physician and a nurse on a block with a community growing space and you know, four generations in a home, no senior is in a facility, no child is uncared for. I just think about the, the pulling the collective and the cooperative to care for everyone. And so it isn't to where, um, as Mrs. Hamer even you know, talks about, this isn't individual wealth, this isn't individual gain, this is collective. And thinking about what do we need and how do we make sure that we are cared for. I can you know, even talk about it in terms of Detroit. 
uh, one of the things that made me fall so in love with D-Town Farm was when I asked questions like, um, if there was a grocery store in your neighborhood that sold culturally appropriate for affordable food, you know, um, sustainably grown, would you still grow your own food? And the, the answer was, and this never, almost never happens in scholarship, right? 100%, absolutely. Because I wanna know the process, how it was grown, where did the seeds come from, what was used, but I also wanna make sure that the resources that come from that food are regenerated and not extracted. Mm. And the thing that just always gives me goosebumps is listening to the folks who were farmers in Detroit talking about, my kids are grown, my kids are adults, but I wanna make sure that this generation of children aren't drinking you know, sodas and eating chips. I wanna make sure that they're nutrient rich food sources for them. And so to me, I don't think about it in terms of profit. I think about community wellness and community wealth as in how do we make sure that we're all cared for. I love your answer and I would just say I, I'm thinking about answering it differently because I, sure. I mean, there's one there's one way in which clearly none of the people I'm writing about were getting rich mm -hmm. off of what they were doing. So clearly, it's not profiting in the sense that I'm most worried about, which are the people who are making tons of money and who are sustaining all kinds of harmful social structures off the backs of people. I think that's when I think of profit. That's what I mean. But. There is a part also in the book where I talk about the kind of transactional quality that really was there in a lot of activist projects that I discuss, where even the people are not getting money for their work, they are getting something back. And I actually think, and it's not quite profit, it's just I'm riffing off of it because it makes me think about it, but people didn't do what they did entirely selflessly in that it was important that they felt gratified, connected, that they learn things about the world and about themselves and about each other that they would not have. So, and you know, a couple of my narrators were quite aware of this and talked about how good they felt from what they were able to accomplish. And they think, you know, you know, God's Love We Deliver, which is one of the organizations I write about, which brought meals to homebound people with AIDS and now to other people who are sick. The founder of that says, we fed 30, 30 million meals to date. I feel pretty good about myself. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's hard to argue with that. So uh, that kind of um, satisfaction is a kind of capital mm -hmm. that people yeah. derive. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's real and it should be looked at. That's good, yeah. I like how you did that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so this takes me to a, a, actually a, a question that's actually on my sheet of paper. Um, <laughs> Which is both of you and, and Lana, you know, the story that you just told, and actually, you know, Monica, the story that you just told too um, about D-Town and, and about uh, Lana, about, you know, feeding people and feeling good about that, right? And in some ways, the people that you all are talking about, the, the processes that you're writing about, the histories that you're uh, sharing with us is, is a part of a process of narrative recovery. Mm -hmm. Right, and in some ways, both of you mention this in your work. That you're, re you're recovering stories, you're recovering lost history, you're recovering people who just are either dismissed or obfuscated, right? And so, I'm wondering if you all could talk a little bit more about the process of creating narrative, of finding stories, and and you know, Monica, you know, you talk about farmers and land, and collective agency and resilience, and Lana, you talk about food and collective power and organizing as part of this narrative recovery that you're doing in a collective sense. I was wondering if you all could share a little bit more about that. I, I feel like what I was told, what I was taught, suffered from the danger of a single story. 
right? Uh, Jimenanda DGAs, you know, when you have one story, you hold on to it, you feel like that's it. Mm. And I'm hard-headed and I'm determined and I'm like, that can't be. And in knowing that, that there was more to it, I intentionally tried to erase everything I thought I knew about Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, Du Bois, and Mrs. Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer, because I wanted to be authentic in how I read the materials now and not who I was as an activist and undergrad taking over, you know, doing all the things that we did, all the wonderful things, right? So to me, the, 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 the narratives have always been there. In other words, who would have fed freedom riders had it not been for the farmers? And Reverend Paris even says it even more emphatically that the role of farmers have been dismissed, overlooked, and we might not have had the movement had it not been for farmers. And so the voices of those who worked the land, who wanted to work the land, who believed and loved the work, um, and who were also lovers of freedom, their stories had been muted. And so I wanted to unearth those stories. I, I always tell folks there's no such thing as a voiceless, only those who refuse to hear. Mm. And I really wanted to pay attention to the voices because I felt it was important for young people today to hear the work of those who have paved the way for us and to hear the frame of understanding my connection to the earth. If you think about, you know, even at funereal services, right? Mm -hmm. From the earth and to the earth, we will return. You know, just, just thinking about our relationship to the earth and the environment. And I truly believe that we would be in a different position if we recognize that connection to the environment. Mm -hmm. And so there are several narratives that I was able to unearth. And part of that was because I asked permission. I went to Mrs. Hamer's final resting place and I just, you know, I asked for guidance. I'm gonna put my hands on these papers and I just want you to help me see what you mean. And one point of the writing process, I was really going through it, some political turmoil in the country. And <laughs> <laughs> Go figure, right? And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, wow. So I'm seeing what's happening in Detroit and I'm hearing what's happening through Mrs. Hamer's experience. And I literally asked her, Mrs. Hamer, what should I say? Mm -hmm. What should I tell Detroiters on what it is that we need to do? So I was very intentional asking Du Bois and asking, you know, George Washington Carver. I just want to be led in that way. And it led to some complicated situations because, you know, for, uh, for us, uh, Booker T. Washington said some really hurtful things about farmers. And I felt like he was criticizing farmers without criticizing the structure mm. that left people impoverished and uneducated. And, you know, I mean, so I just felt like, okay, so I get it, but... So it was really, you know, unearthing these narratives. It wasn't easy. It was some bob and weave, it was some dupe sessions, it was some, you know, how do I hear this in a way that's accurate to the data, but also can be used to, as we say in Sankofa, how do we look backward to move forward? And so that was my intention around unearthing these voices and these ideas. I mean, just one last thing. Lots of people think Rodell is the founder of organic agriculture, but he's 50 years after George Washington Carver. Mm -hmm. And George Washington Carver was saying, no, don't destroy. No, there isn't more where this comes from. Like, how do we make sure you use this? So part of it is also the narratives. It's like elevating our, our intellectuals to a place to recognize their contributions to who we are and what we're doing now. That was a long answer. Good one, though. <laughs> you know, when I was reading your book and I saw that line, how do we look backward to look forward, I thought that's so it, that the, the, the way that some historians, scholars are comfortably searching for a usable past and others sort of pretend that that's not 
necessarily what you're doing. You're just writing about it. It became, it was very important to me to recover the kinds of narratives that people could use. Mm -hmm. I made a very conscious decision not to write a depressing book. Mm -hmm. Because it, you know, a lot of this is interpretive work, even to the last minute of writing it. You know, when somebody had asked me at one point from the press if I wanted to include an epilogue that talked about our current political moment. Someone had just been elected. <laughs> and there was a lot you could say about the implications of that. And I thought, no. I'm not going to give this story of hope and solidarity and hard work over to Donald Trump. Like, that's just not, I'm not willing to stain the book with this historical moment. I, I want better. And I instead decided to talk about how this moment can be understood as a, a final uniting of tensions between a search for access to food, any food, and a desire for quality food, and how we're in a moment of hope because the food movement is gaining so much ground. Mm -hmm that for the first time, those things don't have to be in tension. There are very powerful coalitions being built. There's unprecedented levels right. of attention. That's right. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on that. Yeah. And let's have these narratives amount to, like, let's, let's leave it there. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would just say, and I don't know, I always felt very lucky in my research, but I found that the people I was interviewing initially didn't see themselves as historical characters or figures. They didn't understand the historical importance of their work. They kind of were a bit, they would say, oh, I, I hardly remember anything, or I'm sure I won't be able to help you. And then inevitably, <laughs> these amazing stories would sort of emerge, which I luckily had recorded. But I really felt like give, it just. Give us one of those. What, what, uh, I mean, briefly. There was a moment when Kathy Goldman what? casually mentioned that she had worked with Claudia Jones, who was a famous communist organizer. And I Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, and just how um, much of an impression that Claudia Jones had made on her as a speaker and how, you know, it was interesting to her at the time that there was this amazing, brilliant intellect who was still somehow kind of not accorded the same positions of power that the men were and what that was about and just kinds of her, her observations of life in the party at that time. I thought, where do you get this? I haven't read about that. And, and how did that impact? her activism or how you oh, well, report on her activism in the book? I think that a lot of her observations about good leadership were stored for when she became a leader herself. A lot of the things she would say about the people who mentored her were then what her mentees said about her. Oh, that's beautiful. So that was amazing to watch. And to just see the, the long recovery of all of those different stories about Mentorship. Wow. I think the book in a lot of ways is really a history of mentorship. Mm -hmm. In the late 20th century, at a time when there's a lot of setbacks. I mean, there's always a lot of setbacks, but new kinds of setbacks. So we can't talk about either one of your books without talking about race, class, gender, ethnicity, questions around identity, right? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how race, gender, class, identity, however you want to define it, wherever you saw it most powerful in terms of the the ways in which it impacted activism actually shaped and influenced activism for good or created conflict and how people overcame that. And I also, this is my double question. This is one of them double questions. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> how does that impact your, how did that impact your own analytical framework, right? So one is about history, right? And how race, class, and gender identity issues impact 
the history and, and the structure of social movements and social struggle. Jeez. And the other is about you, Ugh. right? How does it impact you as the teller of these stories? Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> Please. <laughs> She's not need more time. <laughs> so an idea that I, that I didn't unpack, and part of the reason was the limit of the data, was I consider agriculture as a gendered strategy. And I consider it a gendered strategy because I think that uh, M. Bahati Kaumba wrote a book about gendered social movement strategies and talks about men's relationship to power and the capacity and ability for them to exercise power in political and social movement organizations. And so thinking and looking at resistance strategies broadly, we often think about movements as boycotts, protests, and marches. Mm. And so with that lens, we're often thinking about our energy going against those that we identify as the source of our oppression and exploitation. And so you've got different kinds of strategies, but yet agriculture offered a different direction of resistance. And I'm saying, you know, I think that we should be pro protesting, marching, and boycotting. But I also think that we should be constructing. Mm. And so this constructing, I feel like, is something, especially given my challenge to the definition of farmers, which probably also to the chagrin of USDA, um, <laughs> because they define a farmer by how much money, how much land, how much produce, and that is a relationship to capital and not to not a respect for the labor. And so I include, I use that as an expansive concept, and I say, how about the farm workers? How about the tenant farmers and like the this land is possessed? How about the folks who grow food and feed their families in their yards, like to me it's the act of food production and not do you own it. And so I feel like gender was very clear as a strategy, especially seeing how many women are active in urban move movements today, but have historically grown food, right? Mm -hmm. And not have gotten respected in that regard. For the question and conversation of race, one of the reasons I love Detroit is that we're not afraid to talk about race, we're not afraid to talk about class, we're not afraid to talk about gender, and your failure to address those constructs means that there's something here that can also be unpacked. And looking at the relationship between folks and movements, if you think about broadly defined, and I, I'll accept any challenge you have to that, most of the folks who fight in food justice are not food insecure. Definitely. Right? Definitely. And so if we're thinking about those who have the mic, who are in the movement, the food justice movement, I do think that we miss the real worker bees who are doing the work, who are bridging the gaps and those kinds of things. And often, are, you know, mostly white, right, mm. in terms of the justice movements. And so my lens was to say, I hear what you're saying. I see what's here. I want to look underneath. I want to capture race, gender, and even class to some degree. Um, I'm not food insecure. My family, you know, um, race, middle class. And I don't claim the status. And I use the microphone. I pass the microphone to those that are doing the work. So to me, that is a way to sort of honor and appreciate and respect. In, in other words, so we say grace and we, uh, you know, thank you for the, f but we never thank the laborers. Mm. We never thank the people who, and so I'm always trying to think about the ways in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of class. How do we push against that? How does agriculture offer us a, an opportunity to do that? And in terms of me, I, I don't, uh, help me with that part. See, this is where it gets hard, right? I love talking about farmers. I can't stop talking about me. <laughs> That's the hard part. What, what, help me. Well, let's let Lana okay, get sure. in here, and yes. then I'll come, I'll come back okay, around. Okay, good. Okay, give me a minute. Well, 
Oof, where to begin? I would say, so I think the, the thing that stands out the most obvious to me was how gender plays out mm. in this story. Um, and, and sometimes in surprising ways, sometimes not. So uh, overwhelmingly, it's women who have been mm -hmm. doing the kind of food-related labor. It's been a mixed, get, you know, in some ways a source of pride, in other ways a kind of extra burden, particularly for women of color, sure. particularly for poor women, obviously. It was really interesting to see the way different communities navigated issues of gender. So for example, United Bronx Parents, which is a mostly Puerto Rican and African American organization, most overwhelmingly women, but they didn't call themselves United Bronx Mothers. They called themselves United Bronx Parents. And there were mm -hmm. some men who played important, you know, some fathers who played important roles. And that was really instructive to me. It was one of the first chapters that I, I researched and wrote. And then it was in contrast to you know, the feminist, the white feminist movement that was happening roughly at the same time, which was quite separatist and really didn't want anything to do with men. And I really learned from the critique of separatism that I, I found in that movement. I mean, it wasn't articulated that way, but just the idea that when you're oppressed by the government, by immigration policies, by education, by every possible standard. It doesn't, you know, the men and the women are, everybody's oppressed. So to throw out half of the hmm. population was just not something people were interested in doing. So I really saw that. Hmm. I also saw another thing about gender, the way that charismatic leadership kind of evolved differently among women leaders. There's a tendency to understand charisma, I think, as like, hmm. you know, Martin Luther King or like John F. Kennedy up on high sort of speaking and there's an enraptured audience before them and that's mm -hmm. kind of that. But the way that charisma played out with my, my, my women, the, the women I wrote about, is I saw it be very relational. And this is something that mm -hmm. Belinda Robnett writes beautifully about so, yeah. um, and you know, her focus is on the civil rights movement. And this is more about how it played out in a nonprofit context, but charismatic leadership meant being able to inspire and nurture the leadership in other, usually women. And that, that was seemed like an important gender aspect. I do think what you say, though, earlier, Monica, about most of the people fighting for food justice being not only white, but also class privileged and rarely food insecure themselves, or at least consistently, that was something that I had initially hoped to write against. Like, in many ways, I think your book is kind of the book that speaks to what I hoped to do. Like I ended up kind of writing about people with a lot more privilege. And when I started to write, I thought, what can they know? What can people who've never been hungry know about solving poverty problems? And in, one, in the case of United Bronx parents, Evelina Antonetti, who herself had come from a very working class background, you know, she was fairly middle class by the end of her life. I mean, she had received an honorary PhD. She was very, you know, she received a lot of grants, but she even was not poor by the end. And I think that speaks to who has access mm. to grants, to funding, who can write, you know, if, if that's the structure you're looking at, which in my case, because I was interested in studying people who fed hundreds and thousands of people, mm. uh, I ended up really writing about a lot of white middle class ladies. And as a white middle class lady, I think it was a lot easier for me to do that research. You know, I think I could oh, ask yeah. questions about oh, yeah. race that felt, you know, people answered me really honestly. Sure. I felt like I could really say, you know, especially I looked, you know, I did a study of the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is, it's, it's a very mixed 
group of members, but the leadership was extremely white. And I was able to ask really critical questions and, and kind of put people on the spot in ways that I might not have felt comfortable doing if they were black or if I were black. The, the homogeneity really facilitated yeah. for me in a way. And, and in some ways, you move from how race and gender class shaped people's right. experiences to how it actually shaped your lens, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And, and the difficulties that we have even now thinking in a series of justice, power, and politics, but in the world about how we really cross those boundaries and, and address issues in very critical ways and look at our own subjectivity and identity and how that's shaping our narrative, which is yep. really important. As we knew, the time was gonna fly. Mm -hmm. So why don't we give them a hand and then let's come back to you all for some questions. If we could just give them a quick. So Cody, Cody has a mic back here for us and so we'll take, we'll take a few questions. Thank you. Monica, you mentioned the connection between land, food, and freedom, mm -hmm. and that made me think, this is a question for Lana, but it's based on <laughs> what you said. Um, this through line to, from food to freedom is really interesting to me, so I wondered if you could talk about, did you see the groups that you were working on as struggling for freedom? Was the, the struggle for food for other people a freedom struggle? That's a really good question. I haven't thought about it in those terms, which immediately makes me want to say no. It was about, in a lot of cases, getting by. That the things that people were fighting for weren't enough to make them free. You know, to open, to be able to have school breakfast is important, but it doesn't make you free. On the other hand, I think that the way that people learned about how power works through their organizing did free them, sometimes. The women who, within United Bronx parents who organized with the Board of Education, against the Board of Education, came to understand just how difficult it was to, to make change. And that's information. And that kind of understanding of how things really work does provide a kind of freedom. But certainly not in the way that uh, Monica's subjects understood it. I mean, yeah. I really loved listening to both of you talk in different ways about your emotional relationship to your sources. And I was wondering if that is something that you felt sort of shaped the type of history that you were writing, the emotional connection you had to your sources, and if there was something particular about writing about food that makes you have this, this deeper connection with your sources, or maybe about power, politics, and justice. I would say, for me, the emotional connection emerged later. I think when I sat down with people I was interviewing, I mean, I used a lot of archival sources, too. It's not that the book is only based on the oral histories, but the oral histories, I think, are where the, the juice was. Because I was able to ask people not only what they did, but what they felt about what they did, and, and what it meant to them, and you know, what they learned from it, and how it changed them. And once those questions came into play, that's when my emotional attachment to the issue kind of came out. Because even though you know, my activist work, such as it was, stopped being about food pretty early on. And actually, my own sort of personal organizing experience was around Palestine and working for Palestinian human rights from a Jewish perspective. So I worked with a group called Jewish Voice for Peace very closely for many years. And sometimes I would have conversations with food activists where we would be talking about exactly the same thing. And I would be coming to them with questions that were academic, but they were also political and they were also personal because this was all happening in New York. And often the same people, I mean, people who had been involved in food issues had been involved in many other things. And I'm sure you found this too, but few activists are single issue really over their lives. So I think the emotion for me and the connection to the people came out 
in just how holistic the whole experience was for me. There were so many parts of emotion in this work. Just working with children and growing spaces and teaching vermicomposting workshops and I don't like worms. <laughs> but, you know, just sort of seeing the excitement and seeing the commitment and the part that just really made me feel like I had to tell the story was because I fell in love. I fell in love with people who were mm. doing this work, who were so committed, who, you know, weren't just concerned about themselves. And so I wanted very much to capture the emotion of reading Mrs. Hamer, like seeing the receipt for the first 40 acres, right? And knowing that the black farmer who sold the land to her said he felt better, even though his family was in tax difficulty, he felt better knowing that it was going to a black farmer for a black project. And so, I, I, you know, and hearing the often was sort of overused idea that, that, that young people come to the growing space and say, I'm not a slave. I, I say it's overused because I think that people sort of rely on that when there's so much more to it. And so knowing that I wanted people to stop using that as a, as a, as a justification for this work, I wanted to share what I saw in producers, black folks who connect land, food, and freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Those folks who fight for all of us, those folks who put their lives on the line and you know sacrifice to great extent for for what they do, and most of the folks in in uh, DBCFSN, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, this isn't the only time they've been activists. Mm. So they fought since the '60s. They were organizers in the '60s. They were black power. You know, so it's all of this, and I wanted to share how amazing and incredible the folks were, but also the scholarship and the archives because it doesn't read flat. The papers don't read flat. You know, it's multi-dimensional. And what I loved was if I had somebody do a friendly review or, you know, and people would say, oh, I wept here. Oh. Or this really got me. I got goose. Like, I wanted to hear, I wanted to take you on a journey. And I want to feel that you feel this with me. Like, mm -hmm. we're going to get in this car. We're going to go for a ride. We're going to meet some badass people doing some badass work, and I just want you to see how incredible. But more than that, I wanted to write something that honored the legacy of hundreds of years of black folks who have grown food who didn't get their due. Mm. And I wanted to really capture the, the love and the commitment of folks who were, yeah. So, I mean, I just feel like it was, just, it was so many points and parts where the emotion was a part of it to where, I, you know, just, yeah. So thank you for the question. It was hard for me to ask the question because it was just, there wasn't mm -hmm. a part when emotion wasn't there. Mm -hmm. You know, it was always embedded. It was always, and I just wanted, as a writer, to hold up a mirror for those who do this work to see how beautiful they are. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 